The Ship Platypus Says, Episode 64. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with my co-hosts, Lisa and Rebecca. My name is Thomas. And today we are introducing a new segment, or a series, rather, called REDS. And this segment came around because two members in Australia, in Melbourne, Tom and Ryan, interviewed members of the Revolutionary Communist Organization. And we picked up on some uh, maybe international developments that we wanted to uh, dive into in a little bit more detail. And I, we've sort of assembled the three of us to, to go through some of these, because the first idea that we had, it reminded us of the legacy of the 1970s panel from our 2023 convention, where it was noted that there seems to be a repetition of the 70s in a certain sense, and specifically a repetition of dissatisfaction with the gains of the previous decade. So we could say that the new left had a certain height of activity in the 60s that then subsided in the 70s and led to a lot of new leftist projects, a lot of trade unionism, a lot of workers organizing and self-styled proletarianization that also led to a resurgence of Maoism or Marxist-Leninism. And there seems to be at least some parallels going on today, obviously with some differences. I guess this is where we can come in with the rebranding of the IMT. What was the international Marxist tendency to the revolutionary communist party? So I think for across a few different cities internationally, wherever the IMT have been, you've probably seen stickers of like Uncle Sam with Marx's face on it, pointing at you and saying, are you a communist? Get organized. And this led up to a re- kind of, I mean, I, I'm going to use the word rebrand, but it's like a little bit more complicated than that of the international Marxist tendency, which is a Grantite kind of Trotskyist party that's big in the UK and in uh, Sweden. But elsewhere as well, they have like chapters all over all over the world. Um, but yeah, they've kind of had a, a lot of events at the latter end, latter end of last year to announce that, you know, this kind of move towards calling themselves uh, communists. They're rebranding their, their newspaper from the Socialist Appeal, and now it's going to be called The Communist. And they've kind of very explicitly said it's related to, you know, what they're encountering with their new recruits is... or not new recruits or people they're trying to recruit is the dissatisfaction with the word socialism and this kind of association that it has with, I mean, in the UK in particular, with um, kind of the rise and fall of the Corbyn movement, you know, with momentum and with a lot of kind of leftist groups doing a lot of activist work for the Labour Party and a lot of young people being radicalized in the left through the Corbyn movement and then experiencing this kind of defeat or betrayal And of course, the IMT, you know, at the time that I first encountered them, they were really aligning their strategy, planning for for Corbyn to become the next prime minister of the UK in the 2019 election. So that's also kind of figuring in here to 
you know, organizationally, how are they kind of trying to cope or turn away from their own failure or miscalculation or misprediction? But yeah, I think in general, they're trying to lean into this uh, Bolshevik moment. So this is coinciding with the 100 years since Lenin's death. And we see this actually with the Spartacus League as well. And somebody else can come can come kind of come in with this. But, you know, there's a very straightforward comparison of Jeremy Corbyn to Karl Kautsky and Corbyn's Labour Party to the Kautskin Second International and how the IMT are taking up this position to be the Bolshevik Party. So this, yeah, this is kind of what's interesting. And we saw in like the European conference that happened last month, the Spartacist League were also tapping into this this imagination of themselves as like the Bolshevik party and as the communists against the socialist reformists um, in a similar way. Yeah. I think it's interesting that on the one hand we see a form of neo-communism by these existing organizations as, as you told us, the IMT and the Spartacist league. And at the same time, there seems to be a popping up of, very new organization, very young organizations that looks like Zuma projects. I mean, this is something we want to find out. Also, the third part is um, the success of, Rebecca, you said that um, in a talk before, the success of legacy parties like the KPÖ. So in a way, communism, there is a a phenomena of neo-communism that might be part of the disillusion of the socialist turn the years before of the millennial left that might uh, be also the generational transition from the millennial to the Zoomer left. I mean, this is an open question, um, how these generational yeah, relationships are actually related to each other. But yeah, I do think it's it's uh, interesting. So in, in Leipzig, uh, we do have an IMT chapter, which is kind of new. And we also have these neo-Maoist groups popping up who try to build the workers' movement. And we do have also, I mean, neo-Stalinism is a huge thing in Germany too. Lisa, could you go a bit more into that? Like neo-Stalinism? What do you have in mind? Um, so there is a huge organization, the Communist Organization, Um, So they wanted to clarify the communist movement and they split over the, um, actually over their position on um, imperialism due to the Ukraine war. And there is also the accusation of revisionism. And so they they call each other revisionism. That's why we also put on the panel on the Eurocon because these words seem to be buzzwords, but what exactly behind it these these splits didn't lead to further clarification now they are very very prominent on these palestine demonstrations yeah it seems there's a real ambiguity in these uh thousand flowers that are blooming up whether they are post socialist social democratic groups or simply post covid as is mentioned in the uh interview with the um, Revolutionary Communist Organization. There's also a kind of nostalgia, and it's hard to tell whether they're nostalgic for the 70s or, in fact, um, like the IMT for the 20s, 
they've just renamed their publication The Communist, which is what uh, it was called in the 20s. And um, indeed, there's a real ambiguity about whether this is the beginning of something new or the end of the millennial left. And these are all questions that Platypus wants to take seriously. And so this was the kind of fundamental reason behind this series. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to pick back up maybe quickly on something that Lisa said and that you're following on from Thomas about the relationship between the millennial left. So kind of a generation where they've kind of experienced this kind of objective political form that the left took after Occupy and that felt, you know, kind of captured their imaginations in this kind of in this very particular way and then felt it's like that combined disappointment at least in the Anglophone world, of like Bernie not making the primary nominations, um, Jeremy Corbyn like losing the 2019 election, and then that like hit of COVID. So there, there's kind of like that generational experience. And then you have like the high schoolers that, you know, finished their education in lockdown and were radical, like what's their politicization, radicalization experience? It seems, and this is kind of just more of an open question, it seems to be dictated a lot more, like, they've picked up a bit more on that, you know, the communism or kind of Marxist-Leninism. And the question about that relationship between those two generations is who's, you know, kind of who's leading who? Is it like the dissatisfied millennials that are kind of turning to, you know, the Third International or turning to Mao? And then feeding that to their younger peers? Or is it like these younger Zoomers who are kind of picking it up and then these organizations are like, oh, you know, shit, we're recruiting. <laughs> we're starting to, or there's these people that like have the potential to be new recruits. How do we like appeal to them? Right? There's this insane, like, I got this quote from, I think it's Rob. No, I think it's Alan Woods. Where he says, like, in all countries, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of young people have accepted ideas of communism. These um, real communism comes from gut instinct, the need to fight and change things. These new layers call themselves communists. They haven't read the books, but that's what they are. They don't need convincing. And in my head, I'm just like, what? where is that coming from? What is he kind of like feeling or seeing that is like okay it's it's communism now we've got to like do away with the with the socialists it's out i think that's kind of the motivating force between starting this kind of series and um in sps is actually you know we've had this upper you know some members actually conducting a full-length interview with an, one of these new organizations these kind of young self-identifying communists and our ambition is to kind of follow this thread and kind of tease these questions out. I actually do want to know who is educating the Zoomers. So maybe maybe this is also a chance to, to know where they got their ideas from. It feels like a blast from the past. In the late in the late 2000s, around, I don't know, 2010, there was this moment where Baju and Zizek were the biggest kind of names on the left and but you had this idea of a of a communist tendency that's kind of transhistorical and tends towards uh equality and and it's funny to hear 
Alan Woods, an ostensibly Trotskyist uh, uh, figurehead, make the same sort of arguments about uh, the, the kind of tendency towards communism just existing naturally. So there is a question of where, where the kids are picking this up from, who they're, who they're learning from, who they're reading. Yeah, if you're like a Zoomer that started a, like a new Maoist party off of being recruited into a Discord channel, please get in contact with us and we will interview you. Very good. Well, enjoy the interview. Uh, in the meantime, please remember to like and subscribe, share to your friends. And as Rebecca just said, please get in touch. Um, my name is Ryan and I'm here with Tom from the Melbourne chapter of the Platypus Abeliade Society and today we're interviewing two members of the Revolutionary Communist Org and its youth wing, the Collective of Leninist Youth, Jamie and Anthony. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so we'll just begin with, how did you guys come to the left? I, well, as a young person, I think the primary sort of trigger or moment of radicalization would have been climate change, um, generally building an awareness of that when you're constantly exposed to an influx of incre incredible amounts of information about things happening because of climate change. As a young person, you know, even as young as 12 to 13 years old, it's very difficult not to believe that there is something fundamentally broken about the world in which we live or the system in which we exist. I think it was a combination of that as a negative radicalizing point, but also um, a belief that a better world was possible, that um, we could achieve something, that this wasn't really the end point for basically human society and structure. And I think that was something that I sort of entertained as a young, very young person and grew into, grew into um, yeah, more thorough understanding of communism. Mm -hmm. I should say I'm Jamie, just so you can clarify the voices. Um, yeah, I started out from a very young age always knowing capitalism was a broken system. I'm well, not knowing, but I at least had a very good intuition that things didn't make sense, like unequal, um, unequal development, things like uh, you're, you have an employee who earns such and such wages, you know, products are made, and the boss reaps the profits. That inevitably, mathematically, just doesn't work out. Even as a child, I knew that didn't make any sense. So I always knew from a young age that capitalism was a broken system inherently, but I didn't actually know the answer to that. And I was always just sort of a vaguely anti-capitalist. I was never an anarchist or anything like that. And eventually after university, I came across sort of these like uh, stories online through YouTube and stuff like that. And through all the broken camels back was um, a video explaining that Helen Keller was actually a communist, right? Mm -hmm. And that throughout her entire life, she was constantly, um, pushed aside to make her more uh, palatable to people, right? And that was the one thing that, that sort of made it click in my head that, okay, at this point, I've got to read or get what this communism is. Yeah, that's when I read the Communist Manifesto. And all. So that was uh, sort of uh, it for me, hmm. Helen Keller. Have, had you <laughs> experienced any forms of organized Marxism to that point? Have you encountered any left groups? Accidentally, I had. Um, during university, uh, I was just going to one of my lectures 
and the train I was on was delayed, so I had to I had to take the tram, and on the tram I bumped into a bunch of uh, Marxists attending. Uh, it was in 2019. It was one of those Marxism conference. No, it was a it was a rally. Uh, it was a eco rally, right, in no, no, no. um, front of Parliament House, right? <clears throat> and they said they were um, rallying for a, a climate change. They told me all about um, how they were communists and that. Yeah. Was interest- at the time, I wasn't interested about communism, but I was like, all right, yeah, climate change. That's that's good. I can get behind that, right? So I I, di- I, I wagged school, skipping school, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. And Anthony, had you encountered any Marxist organisation? When I was 15 years old, uh, I considered myself a Marxist Leninist. Uh, I joined the ACP, Australian Communist Party, mm-hmm. for six months maybe total, mm-hmm. um, before essentially just drifting away from that as my own understanding of Marxism changed or developed. Other than that, no organised leftist experience. Mm-hmm. What were the um, theoretical changes that you went through that took you away from <coughs> ACP? Um, oh, well, I think the original thing that actually drew me to the ACP as opposed to the CPA, uh, other than the younger age of their members, was the fact that the ACB didn't have a pro-China stance, and that was something that, like, I was very much, you know, I don't, I could not understand um, from what I knew how anyone could consider China a communist country. Mm-hmm. So similarly, sort of following that development, I sort of began to question the well, my own understanding of the distinction between socialism and communism, you know, higher phase, lower phase, and then from there, sort of. What I understood about the USSR, uh, what I understood about Stalin's Russia, commodity production, um, and yeah, it was sort of just an understanding of previous socialist projects as not necessarily wholly socialist or something to be aspired to, uh, but more so something to learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How and when was the Revolutionary Communist Organization founded? Why did it seem necessary to start a new organization at this time? And what are its unique characteristics among the left? Best to my knowledge, we started roughly two years ago, uh, in March or April. The exact date and the founding members themselves are not exactly certain of who that crowd is. Anthony can probably tell you more about who they are. Uh, it was founded back then after um, there was a sort of separation or a, a lack of unity in the left. And after COVID especially, the left had pretty much shattered uh, to beyond disorganisation. And the RCO was founded principally, first and foremost, to reunify and reorganise the left. Um, did you want to speak more on like, founding members? Yeah, I can yeah. speak more on that. Um, it was two years ago founded um, from a reading group initially. And it was also a result of, um, I believe, Edith and a few other comrades, Morgan, these, these other comrades in the RCO, they had been a part of the Socialist Alliance. Um, a while back, and the um, youth group resistance, I think it is, before its collapse, uh, and sort of in the schism that eventually resulted in the decline, mass decline of Socialist Alliance, they left or kicked out, or most members under 35 were, mm. um, so it was that sort of departure of youth organising and that decline in um, sort of a coherent socialist communist force, political force, um, that I think was what motivated those prison comrades to start up something again or to start up something different to learning from the failures that they experienced within the organisation or what they perceived as the failures. So maybe can you say a bit more about this? You mentioned that the left seemed shattered yeah. after COVID. Can you maybe describe what your experience was encountering these sort of shattered remains of the left? Well, I guess I formally joined the left after COVID. Um, from my perspective and looking back, 
Um, there was a lot of organized action before all the lockdowns, and naturally, because of the lockdowns, we couldn't go outside, we couldn't form up uh, large groups without extreme precautions, and that, in a way, sort of shattered a lot of the uh, the current actions and organi- organizing for um, uh, mass action, industrial action that was happening prior uh, to COVID. Uh, even back then, um, there was a there was a lack of unity, but at least there was something going on. There were there were people. Uh, rallying, there were people uh, protesting, but throughout COVID, the best we had was like BLM, really. Yeah, yeah, and and that is sort of that was sort of it. Mm. But afterwards, I think we've kind of, especially just today, Palestine has been a massive um, uh, regrouping effort. You said that it's the, the RCO started out of this reading group. How did that reading group sort of found its original purpose? Like, in, how did the the idea come out of that reading group, but then also how does that uh, make uniquely characterize the RCO? Why, why is it the way that it is? Um, I think the um, prevalence of quite a few who I would consider highly educated members in terms of Marxist theory and communist theory, that sort of backbone of intellectual theoretical knowledge, I think came through quite strongly in the RCO's ideas um, and practice as opposed to having a sort of conception of a single ideological basis, um, like, you know, we consider ourselves a Trotskyist organisation or a Cliffite, you know, canonist, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you guys perceive, given you have that theoretical depth, do you perceive the new younger members who are joining the organisation that one of the main tasks is to educate them? Like, is that... Definitely, definitely. Um, I can speak as someone who's currently working with the education working group. So recently we've been working uh, to establish consistent uh, seasonal uh, classes and they vary in level. They used to just be on-off, on-off things. Um, we teach mostly around uh, like Karl Marx, Engels, Lenin. We also delve into Kautsky and even some contemporary writers. Uh, I know we've delved into Foucault a bit. Um, uh, we have supplementary readings and stuff like that that we do. It's like that. Um, but we're also expanding beyond into like more theoretical research, going into like particles, and even um, uh, we're also trying to expand that into uh, theoretical writing and trying to provide a group uh, or at least uh, a base of RCO members that are competent and confident enough that through their reading and research they can also write works of their own mm-hmm. and through our direct action, through our publications, we can push for theoretical um, outcomes. Yeah. I think um, uh, ensuring that comrades understand why perhaps the RCO or any organisation positions itself as it does or has the structures that it does, I think that's um, quite important to maintaining a critical membership base that can understand mm-hmm. why things are and also challenge them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, keeping, sorry, but continue. Oh, keeping that spirit of debate and um, yeah, yeah. intellectual... Um, maybe just in this final question, is there any other way in which you would say that the RCO is unique amongst groups on the left? Is there any other characteristics of it? The most distinguishing aspect of the RCO to some of the left groups is, again, the programmatic unity, having a basis of a program, adhering to that over some, like, or either not having a program at all or not having one that's fleshed out, not having a um, theoretical 
a platform that can be debated and can, you know, having the openness of factions as well as an important aspect. So facilitating that democratic central structure, mm-hmm. making sure that the program is a living document. It reflects the strategies of the, the pre-party organization at the time mm-hmm. and can shift and change as the conditions around the pre-party change. Mm-hmm. Um, you define RCO as a pre-party organization. What does this mean? How does this diagnosis affect the goals and structures of your organization? What needs to be accomplished in order for a party to be created in the future? Okay, yeah. Um, so a pre-party organization, that means we're not a mass party. We don't believe uh, that right now our organization is capable of taking a, a socialist revolution right, to its uh, natural end. We, we want to create the party that can do that. So reflecting in our goals, that means we're trying to build up a membership of competent, capable members who can lead, who can teach, who can pass on knowledge, and also um, who are are, uh, present and um, in large enough population to have a national reach, a large mass party. We can't do that with like 100 or so people that we have currently, right? And uh, on passing on knowledge, that means we also have to have a youth wing, which is a CLY. Um, and if we don't have that, then we just eventually grow old and die. Right? We don't want that. We want the left to continue. We want to have revolutionary politics be the growing forefront of our generation and the next generation. Yeah, we're, we aren't. Um, the truth is that the RCO doesn't embody the vanguard right now, currently, um, or anything like it. It doesn't embody the mass party. Um, and we can't um, act as or treat. We can't act as if we are or treat other comrades or just people in general, um, workers, uh, as if we were uh, in the first place. Because the fact of the matter is there's an incredible amount of work that needs to be done, uh, the incredible amount of work that the RCO needs to put in into um, militarising its own members. You know, it, it's ensuring that all cadre have a, a level of competency and understanding that can be spread um, and can result in or continue to inform, you know, the creation of ultimately a mass party, however that takes place. Um, yeah. What, what do you think, uh, given that that is the task and we are at this stage on the left where it's necessary for a pre-party formation, what, what's the primary thing that's lacking on the left that people can't just come in and build a party? I don't want to say unity, but I feel it's unity. That's the thing that I, I, I would say it is, is that, um, and unity I don't mean in that we all have to be in the same party. I mean unity in that uh, some sectors of, of the left currently want to go and um, do student politics, some want to go and do trade union politics, electoralism, what have you, right? We need to all be coming under the same strategic plan, the same tactics, right? We can't have a revolution if we're all disorganized and all fighting for different uh, fighting at different fronts right we all need to be unified as a mass party um mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't help that the level of class struggle currently is quite low in melbourne or at least the level of class consciousness the understanding that people a lot of comrades a lot of workers um have of sort of the contradiction between labor and capital i think is quite minimal which makes of course you need to begin with that education, with that radicalization process, before you can hope to draw in a basis for a mass party. Yeah. Could you spend maybe a minute or so just describing the structure and the size of the RCO? You know, where are the comrades located? Their ages, their backgrounds. 
um, the some maybe some of the internal structures, the working groups, the yeah. home address, full name. <laughs> 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 yeah. Just a page of the camera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I'd say we roughly have about a hundred to a hundred and something members. I think I'd go yeah, hundred or lower to be honest. Hundred or lower. Yeah. 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 It's hard to gather because I don't know every single person by name unfortunately um, and we're split across uh, all of uh, Australia but places primarily Melbourne and Brisbane are the two places where we have a lot of people uh, in Brisbane they've got maybe like 40 50 people somewhere around there wow. yeah probably yeah something like that they've got there are currently two to three cells uh, yes. up running in Brisbane there's two currently in Melbourne uh, one based around high school and the other based around just broader regional Melbourne yep um I think the that that is sort of this goes into the function and structure of the RCO yeah. cells being the primary level of organisation yep. for different groups for different you you want a cell to be small maybe ten people max yep. um, and with other with same cells in different cities ideally you want these cells also to be focused around not regional areas or geographic areas but rather around places of employment places of education because then you have a central sort of character or shed these shared similar experiences and straight you can focus your strategy more clearly a shared struggle yeah um yeah. so with those cells eventually once you have uh two or three cells within a single city the idea is to form a city committee um where you have elected members from those cells making up a city-wide committee which can again coordinate those groups coordinate across these cells and make sure that they can all um cohere around that same those same strategies overall but um and then, of course, you've got the Central Committee being the primary uh, elected body and yeah. General Congress every year, um, which is yeah, responsible for electing members of the Central Committee. Mm -hmm. yep. And what about the ages? Like, how would you describe your... Oh, it's all over the place, I'd say. Yeah, 17, yeah, okay. 17 to about 40, maybe a little under 40, I might be wrong on that one. But yeah, so that's sort of the age range. Most of, most of the RCI, I'd say, is fairly young, at least under 25. Yeah, so what is the collective Leninist Youth and what is its relation to RCO? Why was it founded? Yeah, um, the collective Leninist Youth, I'm just going to say CLY from now on because it's a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> but um, the, the CLY was, it, it functions as the current only organised body of the Reds Communist Youth League or the RCO's league um, structure for youth members uh, intended to eventually on a national level, engage with youth, engage with the young radicals and draw in those revolutionaries in a similar sort of caucus or uh, grouping, um, similar to the um, Lavender Revolutionary Front League. I can't remember the exact name, but the, essentially our, uh, we've got a queer league and we've got a um, feminist women's league too. So these sort of specific identities that can also serve to be the basis of, again, a further mass organisation engaged with specific sections of the population. Currently, the CLI, again, we function as the, the primary and only organised component of the RCO's Youth League. Um, so, sorry, so you, you were one of the founders of the CLI. Yes. And now it's sort of like a, is it a cell of the RCO or is it? Ah, uh, yeah. It, it's an, it's an organised component in that um, it's, it's sort of just like a, it functions as a cell in that it has the same structures in place, internal structures, in order, like a having a um, cell committee sort of thing, a group that can direct those actions. But less formally, it is essentially, it's a component of the youth league as a whole of the mm -hmm. RCO, uh, which means that it functions 
essentially across cells. Um, so we've got comrades from both the high school cell and the regional cell in the CLY. Mm -hmm. um, but it's about maintaining, we meet maybe once a month, mm -hmm. you know, when uh, the other cells aren't meeting to make sure we maintain that connection with, again, specific youth demographics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the CLY is sort of mainly targeting youth and high schoolers in some mm -hmm. sense. Why Lennon? Why Leninist? What, how does that register with the youth? Do they, are they intrigued by the Leninism or is it a, does it turn them off? How do you engage with them on the question of Lenin? In some ways, aptly reflected our politics in terms of aspects of democratic centralism, that internationalist um, approach, and the structure of the RCO as a party. There are aspects of Leninist party building. It also, in terms of Leninism as it relates to youth, <clears throat> I don't think... Collective Leninist Youth particularly registers with youth as a good or a bad thing. I think when they hear Leninist, they are they are they would be intrigued, um, but there isn't necessarily most young people don't understand what even like what that means. Mm. Um, so it's sort of as opposed to just communist, it requires you to first engage with the idea of Leninism to even begin to you know come to terms with what the organisation is um, and I think that's it does help with making sure that the people who are interested in joining or who are aware of it have first done their research essentially or really looked into what it actually means yeah I mean there's, there's a lot of new young youth organisations around the world that are sort of neo-Stalinist in character too there's a lot of young mm -hmm. people who are drawn to sort of Stalinist iconography or memes and stuff like this mm -hmm. Do you, do you have an orientation to Stalin or do you engage with young people who do have these kind of Stalinist sympathies or <clears throat> third worldism or you know, uh, Maoism of some sort? Do you encounter this? Uh, I think uh, I've encountered uh, comrades who sympathise with third worldism, with Maoism, um, comrades within the RCO who do as well. It's the Stalinist sort of imagery is an interesting one to me because a lot of it comes from, or at least I would see it as coming from a similar place to the shock value or sort of this it's, it excites the the image of Stalin or the idea of this you know having a positive view being contrarian compared to a population who paints him as a bloodthirsty warlord dictator etc um, it's similar to and of course nowhere near on the same sort of ideological level but similar to how again a lot of young people drawn to Nazism are drawn to it initially because of ironic memes or this sort of humour that it's, it's shocking, essentially, and it's subversive. I don't think we particularly have an orientation towards Stalin. I mean, I think it's sort of... It does become implicit in, your pol in the RCS politics currently, in the RCS program, that it would be difficult to maintain a significantly pro-Stalin position just because, yeah. you, and particularly through education, you develop an increasing understanding of what you understand capitalism to be and what the, you understand the USSR to be, which sort of contradicts the innate sort of, oh, it's a socialist project you know, Stalin was a uh, proletarian hero sort of thing. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we don't see many youth groups that are even have Lenin named. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about the, you mentioned before, the anger of the youth, and I feel like that is very much rings true to me in the sense that there does seem to be um, with young people today, like anger and nihilism, mm -hmm. and there also does seem to be like a potential for that to go somewhere in mm -hmm. terms of channeling into revolutionary politics, but at the same time, doesn't seem to go there. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems to be 
channeled into lots of other things, but not necessarily politics. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, like, where do you think that that anger comes from, and like, how, what should we be doing with it, essentially? Yeah, I think, um, God, it's 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 primarily to do with uh, explicit contradictions within capitalism and um, the system of capital in general, but particularly, of course, climate change being a big one. It's this sort of watching a system grow like or continue to expand or at least attempt to expand and contract and doing all this in sort of a context in which youth you you feel as if your future or at least there is no real concern for what will happen to you it's not particularly a top priority to make sure young people are okay or to make sure that there is something left for future generations um i think it also comes from the fact that I, th- I mentioned this earlier, but the this sort of <laughs> unleashing of um, hyper-consumable amounts of like just constant stream of information that is um, given to young people about every single issue around the world, every single moment of a young person's time, you know, social media, just advertising in general, life uh, as a whole, it becomes increasingly, I think it's quite hard to ignore or at least feel as if everything is commodified uh, and to feel that impact on you in the man I think it can quite easily manifest as anger because it's you can sense a sort of artificiality and disconnect from uh, other people you know that alienation that secondary layer of mediation which does come through quite strongly <laughs> it, I mean it has a lot of effects like people will will go to bed later and they'll wake up earlier just so they can get more time to themselves that they won't get yeah. in the rest of the world they've got a part-time job because they need to buy the newest um, commodity or whatever, whatever it be that helps them connect with their friends should they go to school once they leave school they don't have friends to hang out with anymore they don't have a context a social life outside of the home right it's isolating it leads to nihilism and you see that in like meme culture and all that sort of stuff people like <coughs> crying over the fact that the world is isolating it's a, it's a bubble that we all live in we're all separated from each other and it also manifests in anger yeah. and commodifying every part of our life every part of our existence it's dehumanizing and it comes out in those ways anger depression which is i think also part of the reason it doesn't necessarily this anger and uh fury doesn't necessarily always lead to radicalism i I feel that that does pose problems as well for as you mentioned the you know you were saying you didn't want the coy just to be a youth organization Mm -hmm because you want older people to be able to educate younger people to kind of transmit their experience of the left to them. Yeah. But it does pose a problem when you have the younger generation maybe going through something that the older generation can't quite comprehend how that kind of generational transmission can take mm-hmm. place. Do you, do you perceive that as like tensions between the generations as a problem for educational transmission? One thing I do see is I don't think it's impossible to see it because... Even my own parents, um, despite their own politics, they're not communists, but they see it too. They see how it is fairly hopeless for the next generation on. And they don't blame uh, kids being angry and you know being dejected from reality. Um, I think it's possible to see it. Um, I feel like humans have an inherent ability to analyze the world materially. We can see that rent prices are getting ridiculous. How does one even get a job that will even afford them a house? Not to buy, that's out of the question. Um, to even just rent, like to not go homeless 
food prices and cost of living is going up in every metric. How does one survive without living in a barrack? It's yeah, it's becoming a it's becoming an impossible world to live in, and that's something I think the adults can see, but it needs to be shown in a way that they can understand. And I feel like there are some that will refuse to understand it or just can't. Um, for considerably older radicals, those in their seventies, sixties, or late sixties, seventies, eighties, I think there is more of a potentially a more of a solidarity with actually the the youngest um, revolutionaries, these younger radicals. Um, I think partly because of experiences of 68, um, there's like mass social upheaval, societal upheaval. Also partly because the, sort of seeing this, uh, again, seeing a new generation or seeing something actually hap- occur, these, you know, it does bring that sort of hope um, in general. But um, I think, um, I don't know, I think there is enough common ground between these struggles uh, of older leftists and those of young generations to mm-hmm. find an ability to um, connect and to transmit that knowledge. Yeah. You, you mentioned the 1968 generation, but uh, the next question is that the collective of Leninist youth write, quote, the illusions once given to our parents and the generations preceding them do not blind us. There is no more false sense of security or trust in electoralism precisely because we have been failed and will continue to be so, end quote. So how has the failure of the electoralism of figures such as Bernie Sanders and, and the other millennial electoralist projects, how has that failure affected the younger generation's politics? From, from my own experience, I know a significant amount of young people who have taken their direct support for figures like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn and have just become so... Again, it has fueled that anger that they have and it's fueled, of course, a radicalisation process. Uh, And then they're like, right, okay, so, you know, not even these minor concessions can be made by capital. Like, there's not a a single drop will be spared sort of thing that will be squeezed out of us. And it's like that failure in those figures specifically uh, in, like, 2016, which was... I was quite considerable, quite young, but also even in 2020, I was filled with some sort of like hope for Bernie Sanders, despite even then knowing all the flaws and issues. But it's it's a sort of being exposed to that failure from a young age and being exposed to the failure of those projects has significantly impacted, I think, how young people view electoral projects in general and view the electoral structure. People are significantly disillusioned, or at least feel as if there isn't really any point in participating in these electoral projects because they clearly don't do anything, you know, there's clearly no hope for them to work. That anti-electoral stance does lend itself to more radical politics or at least to uh, ask why. So in the RCO's Queer Liberation position paper, uh, the RCO writes that the communist position on the gender question is that of abolition. Only when the gender dyad has been overthrown, when gender has been smashed, and where biology no longer determines our destinies, can we truly live as free people? End quote. Could you expand on how you understand queer liberation theoretically and how RCO's position on queer liberation differs from other Marxist groups, both in the present and historically? How has this made RCO attractive to people? On the question of queer liberation and um, uh, abolishing uh, gender and its uh, oppressive nature, or at least the way it presents itself. Obviously, gender, the subject, is not oppressive, but the way we enforce uh, gender dynamics um, 
is extremely oppressive and is only sorry and exploitative and yeah and exploitative yeah and is exploitative. Um, the, the the current system of uh, the gender dyad we have it's very hard to push into mainstream politics um, the issues of trans people or queer people um, even among the left uh, they do uh, acknowledge it and in some progressive uh, ways even the system can acknowledge some queer uh, uh, to lack queer oppression and you know to recognize queer people but even recognizing queer people uh, as say uh, a trans woman is a woman, a trans man is a man, it still puts them in the same category as man and woman, where we still have an exploitative system, the patriarchy, where we have a, a man who is more likely to go and have the freedom of uh, working their own job, still exploitative, but the woman is kept at home, and the, the labour that uh, a woman does at the home, uh, be that cleaning, be that uh, raising children, um, is all still labour, and it's considered labour, but it is unpaid for and pretty much uh, slavery, right? And highly exploitative. That system is one we seek to abolish completely, both for women, both uh, and also for queer people in general. And we also understand uh, the patriarchal system as one that also negatively affects men, right? Forcing men to work in dangerous positions, we have to recognise as well. But of course, the queer the queer liberation question is one of not just recognising and stopping uh, hate speech. We have to completely revolutionise the way we see gender, so that it doesn't determine the destinies of people. People are not meant to choose their uh, their uh, profession based on their gender or the sex they were assigned at birth. It makes zero sense. Why should I have to be a bricklayer? Why can't I be an artist? Why can't I be a teacher, right? Those questions are not just minorly oppressive and exploitative. It comes to a greater extent where we, as I said earlier, we force people to work for labor. That is ultimately for the system itself, completely for free, slavery. We have children who are being raised by mothers and maybe single fathers as well. They don't get paid for any of that work, and yet that child is expected to grow up and also join the system, produce commodities for the system. It's essentially a, a free way to make more slaves. Again, yeah, the, the understanding of gender revolution or the RCS position on queer liberation is, of course, heavily informed by Marxist feminist politics. Mm -hmm. That understanding of gender and patriarchy as exploitative and oppressive, um, and the conclusions reached from sort of I'm not going to say radical feminist because of you know certain other yeah, sections of radical yeah. feminist, but um, that from that revolutionary feminist understanding, and I think the thing that distinguishes this uh, position or gender abolition generally from other communist and socialist organisations in uh, Australia is so other groups posit and will of course speak um, on queer liberation as a primary issue, and they will they will talk about it. At, as something to be achieved, something to be attained in a socialist society, this, you know, uh, freedom for queer people, this non-discrimination, but they don't posit the strategy, or they, most of them don't posit the strategy of gender, uh, gender abolition as a path towards queer liberation. Mm. And I think um, through expressly emphasising the importance of gender abolition to any sort of queer uh, liberation to begin with, to any sort of movement or to any sort of feminist movement to begin with to actually um having that as primary end goal is uh quintessential to having those coherent that coherent understanding of queer liberation and one that has a strategy and has a direction it wants to strive towards beyond non-discrimination 
mm-hmm. um, without without theory based uh, without theory and intentions towards gender abolition, you are ultimately leading yourself towards liberal uh, political identity politics, right? Or assimilationism. Assimilationism, yeah. Um, and we're not interested in liberal politics. Do you, do you find that this position is particularly uh, powerful in your recruitment efforts? Do you find a lot of young people drawn to this critique of, of gender and patriarchy? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we have a large, um, we, we, we do recruit quite a large uh, queer uh, population um, and we accept all people and we promote uh, their liberation and the abolition agenda and that is something that really speaks uh, to us all, I think, um, especially queer people because a lot of liberal identity politics we find fails in explaining our specific understanding of the world around us, especially from a Marxist point of view. Um, a lot of uh, liberal identity politics is about uh, who can say what rather than actual change. Like, it, uh, it doesn't matter if I get to say, oh, I'm treated unfairly, if that doesn't actually do anything. If it's only just a sorry from the government or uh, a, a library named after me or whatever, that doesn't actually stop someone from seeing the real uh, hate from other people, seeing the actual oppression. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think the the project of queer assimilation is one of the progressive wing of capital. I mean, it ultimately does benefit capital as a global system if it doesn't discriminate significantly against queer people because it means that it can integrate them into more areas of work, more places of wage labour and more commodities to be consumed. So I think that's why gender abolition is quintessential to a radical um, approach to queer liberation in that it, I don't think it's something that can be reconciled with uh, capital as a system or at least it would have to be done so after it's lengthy period of struggle which um, which would probably precede revolution yeah mm-hmm. how, how do you feel the history of Marxism has been on this question do you think Marxism is mm-hmm. like it's it's been kind of on the progressive in not in a liberal uh, sense yeah, but in a in an actual, more radical yeah. revolutionary sense on the gender question or do you think it's there's been periods where the older left has failed and this is a newer mm. thing how would you guys perceive the history there i think one major part of old leftist um inclinations towards queer liberation has been very uh, it, even at one point i forget when exactly this started but um throughout like the stalin era there was a lot of this idea that uh, homosexuality um, and queer politics was very bourgeois right which isn't completely wrong it's a very crazy position to have but understanding their material conditions, understanding where they came from, they came from very conservative backgrounds and conservative um, uh, world systems. It's understandable why they came to that position, though it was wrong, right? And it's probably, I would say, been more of a growth from uh, a very backwards time to, in terms of like uh, queer abolition, in terms of uh, understanding radical politics for all people, including homosexuals, by yeah, not all yeah. small, but yeah, uh, we'd be here for a while. But um, and it's I feel like now we're in uh, probably the the golden age of understanding uh, queer liberation in a radical sense. Yeah, if you want to expand on that. I, yeah, no, I do think. I mean, I think in general, Marxist tendencies have been progressive on this question um, mm. in comparison to their social surroundings. I think. Um, I mean, you know. The most famous example I can think of right now is Alexander Kolontai um, as being, you know, extremely Marxist feminist and having those 
sort of initiating quite a lengthy process of investigation into Marxist feminism, gender, um, ultimately queer issues as well. Yeah, I certainly think there's also a, the, the period such as 1968, again, this um, resurgence in identity first um, politics um, and that, that expression of queer liberation through those movements is definitely something that interests me in that there was an extreme amount of learning and I think progress that Marxists and Marxist groups were able to make on queer issues because of 1968 and because of the emphasis placed on identity. But I also think in 1968 itself, the solutions that were arrived at there or the sort of emphasis on identity over, in many cases, a rejection of class struggle and a replacement of that with certain aspects of identity was, of course, flawed. Um, which is why I think I'd agree with Jamie when that it's the current situation, the present situation for a fundamental connection between class politics and identity and queer issues and gender is um, more developed and has more potential for growth than it did in either of those previous eras. Mm-hmm. I guess as a last question, today we I saw you at the uh, Gaza rally, you know, the Palestine rally in, in the city. Uh, I was just wondering what your reflections were on the activities there and do you, was the RCO presenting a, a position there or were you were you uh, engaging with other left groups there? How did you how did you find it? Um, well, we kind of have to engage with left groups. Um, we've kind of become a bit uh, infamous, I guess, or it, amongst other left groups, um, especially like Socialist Alternative, Spartacists, Spartacists as well. Um, they have my number now, and so we do have to we do we do interact with them, um, and a lot of it does come down to just discussions about non. Uh, Palestine issues, which I find really disturbing. Yeah. yeah, like I was having a discussion earlier, and it led to, of all things, North Korea, um, even though uh, we were at a Palestine rally. Um, though we do try and... I, I feel like most of us all have the same position on Israel and Palestine. So there's not much of a position we need to you know, push out, because we all have the same position. We're all pushing that same position. And as far as I understand from most of the uh, Palestinian groups that aren't uh, inherently radical, they're all of the same opinion as well. Um, so we're not, inha- we're not really pushing any one, uh, pers- uh, any one perspective or solution. I feel we all have the same one, which is probably a large character of why this has been such a large unifying section for the left and even parts of the more left-leaning uh, groups that aren't quite radical. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I think definitely comrades have, across different organisations, have very similar positions. What we have been pushing, just in terms of materials we've been distributing uh, and conversations we've been having, has been the analysis that we specifically would have in the situation that might differ from others. Um, mm. I can think specifically of, again, the Spartacists yeah. as their um, notions around splitting the IDF, as I understand it, or the IDF's construct, construct yeah. army, and that sort of is distinct from uh, the RCO's understanding of uh, the national liberation of struggle of Palestine needing to take, like, mm. must come first and then have that, you need to have that initial period of struggle, that initial mm. success uh, before we can begin the um, complete and act successful formation. You can have the formation before, but the successful formation of class politics, yeah. um, serious class politics in, in occupied Palestine. I actually did want to ask one more question just to close out. Yeah. So at the beginning, you mentioned the RCO is kind of formed around this goal of left unity. And now that you guys have been into that project, I just wonder how you kind of evaluate 
Not necessarily your success, I mean, maybe that too, but mm. is it what you expected? Are there any difficulties? Are you happy with pursuing that project? Like, uh, mm. have you found other left groups amenable to that or? Left unity, I feel, is a struggle in futility very often. Mm. Um, uh, it is very difficult um, and it is quite a long road to go down. I don't blame us for not having unified the left yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a failure that we haven't done it. Um, we have worked in getting regular connections with a lot of groups around and we are approaching some level of conciliatory um, conversations. But that is, I would say, the best we could really do at the moment. Um, I feel some groups are very uh, open to left unity. Others are not. They're very much sectarian in nature. But of the ones that are still open, I find that they are more disguised as they are open, but they have a very sectarian rhetoric and have a very... Um, they, want, they would rather everyone be recruited into their organisation as unity, not unity among all the other parties. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I don't really ever use the term like left unity that frequently just because it brings to mind an image of, you know, sort of anarchist, uh, scientific socialist cross collaboration, like sort of that broader left unity aspect, which I reject as a political project, not in completely, but reject as the goal of the RCO. I think it, the, the emphasis, I think, is placed on our program as the point of unity or having a program as the point of unity. And I think. The RCO has been fairly successful in sort of raising awareness about that, in collaborating where we can with different groups, hopefully into the future, on specific issues, and just sort of yeah, seeing where we go. I think that's mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Well, thank you both of you for coming today. Um, and by the time this goes to air, we would have had our panel featuring Anthony and the uh, Spartacus League and another group talking about imperialism. Uh, what is it and, and why should we be against it? So we'll link that in the description of the episode and we'll also link the various documents, the Statement of Purpose and the Queer Liberation Paper and the CLY document that we're talking about. And anyone's interested, we'll link to the RCO and you can check out their Facebook page and website. Great. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Awesome. Thank you. That's it. That was great. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!